Bruce, we have the benefit of you on the line. We'll, we'll get an EvoGrid update at the end of the call, if, if that's possible, to kind of extract you from the EvoGrid for a minute. But you've just come from Flint. Can you describe what, what Flint is, how they operate, and do they do any teaching, or are they purely a research organization? Can everybody hear me? Yes. Yes. Wonderful. Yeah, Flint, Flint is a research organization dedicated to uh, the uh, creating chemical protocells, uh, so they really have a, a tall uh, a tall order in front of them. Uh, they're they, they're going out into the world and doing a lot of presentations, and they have a mixture of simulation and laboratory chemistry. Through the work group, I think some of the stuff that was generated, particularly in terms of soft artificial life, wet artificial life, hard artificial life, the teaching of, I mean, what interested me with regards to the Flint audio that you provided was um, the sense that there is a need for soft artificial life to be taught in some areas, a hard artificial life to be taught in some areas, even to these kind of researchers, that we can all learn from the stuff that is coming out of the work group. And I think this seems to be echoed in the, in the call today that uh, even folks who are, are teaching artificial life currently can always learn from other areas. In terms of the... Um, so there's no teaching component associated with Flint, but does Steen and do other members of the group still teach in the in the university? I don't believe they do. I think they're full time. They have a, a three or four year remaining on their grant to do this. Uh, okay. Protocell. That's it. Yeah. All the way forward. All the way forward. So, in terms of wet artificial life teaching, uh, Larry or, or Stephen, do you do you have a sense of how wet artificial life is currently being taught? Is it all at graduate level? Is this something that can be integrated to into the work group? Mostly, what I, the only areas of this that I'm aware of are either, um, you know, intense research efforts a la a protocell, or um, uh, there's been a lot of work, I think, at the uh, graduate level with uh, and, uh, various solutions um, of oils and things that um, um, I, I sort of got... In, dragged into a little bit because of a friend, Rachel Armstrong, and her strong interest in it, and the, um, uh, some presentations that went on at um, at Artificial Life uh, 11. And um, it, I'm not deeply aware of this area at all, but uh, uh, there there seem to be a whole lot of um, there seems to be a lot of interest in trying to approach these protocells from a purely uh, chemical basis um, as, as distinct from protocells approach to sort of uh, a, a real physical space genetic algorithm trying to operate and bring about um, um, a, a protocell. Uh, and they're getting some interesting results. They're getting, you know, chemotaxis and cell, what, what sort of looks from the outside like cell division even occasionally, but uh, there's nothing quite yet that's sort of um, propagating from one generation to that. We're not getting um, um, variation and selection going yet, so the, it, it's not something that uh, you know, is quite to the level of living organisms yet. But on the other there's been some such interesting work uh, looking at... Um, ah, sorry, I wish my memory of these things was better, but... Um, uh, you know, people talked about hydrothermal vents in the ocean for a long time and looked at some of these really hot uh, smokers, but there's a different kind, an alkaline or something, that, that is not as high a temperature and some really good evidence that uh, 
it provides a nice environment for the collection of uh, essentially protocells because you get all the ingredients that ultimately end up inside a cell but without having to have its own membrane yet. And then as the membranes um, form, uh, these things get spewed out in the ocean and it's looking like a very good candidate for the origins of natural life. And some of those things lead to experimental ideas about uh, what the right combination of ingredients and what the right uh, uh, environmental conditions are to, to foster these sorts of protocells. So anyway, sorry, I got off on talking about the, the technology. The, the uh, specific researchers um, uh, all seem to be uh, at the graduate level that I'm aware of. Certainly. But, I mean, I think there's potential in the future, particularly as the media picks up on the wet artificial life phenomena, that you will have students coming through that have at least a passing interest in wet artificial life, and I think it's critical that the work group has a component. I mean, with with Mark Bordeaux involved, it would be almost impossible for us not not to, to right? <laughs> that had some uh, that had some component uh, with regards to potentially even the undergraduate teaching of the basics of wet artificial life. The thing that always interests me is this idea of a shared API that Mark talks about. That in fact, soft artificial life simulators can move into the shared uh, API. Uh, with regards to wet artificial life too, and I think there's there's an element of the Evo grid in that too, Bruce. So we we may let you loose on the Evo grid in about 20 minutes, but we'll we'll wrap up the call up until that point. So in terms of the the potential for the for the work group in the future, we we have a, a few perspectives uh, on the call. We've talked a little bit about the industry, but we haven't really talked about the value problems specifically. Oliver, as as you read, as you get a sense of what artificial life is. What would you describe the value of artificial life as being? Oh, that's 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 a toughie. Um, I think uh, for for me, um, artificial life is is how do I say it? It's it's it just seems to be uh, one of the big questions. You know, it seems to sort of touch on one of the big questions of what it means to be human. But we do it in a way that's that's been it's sort of a proxy for that for me anyway. Um, it kind of defines us as human beings as well, just because um, we uh, have a certain kind of uh, cognitive efficacy to to even imagine and um, sort of assert a will towards creating something like that. Um, so so for me, it, it it's it. It just seems uh, to sort of illustrate what it means to be human. Um, I, 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 it's such a tough question. <laughs> no, I, I understand. I mean, I think that's why, it, in even raising it as a as a topic for the work group, it, my view is that it will take you know half a dozen philosophers and others probably a, a few years to really grapple the, the full ramifications. I, w I want to give two implicit examples of this because I see Gerald de Jung in the chat. And Gerald and I have talked about this in the past in previous recordings for the Biota podcast. And the thing that comes through, firstly, is that artificial life, in terms of when you take all these things together, and the, the good example is wet artificial life with regards to soft artificial life, it's really quite difficult to find a then uh, between the two, if you look at them in a very abstract way, yet yet they're very much part of the same term. And I, the, the 
thing that I put back to Gerald almost as a quip is artificial life is what what people say is artificial life. It's fundamentally that. But the other thing that I find interesting from what you describe, and certainly I feel this for the artificial life community as well, as an external observer, as someone as you come close to the artificial life community, you start to see very fascinating people. We have we have a few of them on the call today, um, in my own experience, and in fact, uh, all of you, basically. And when you come to this community, uh, as you approach it, you see uh, people... Uh, like Larry, you see people like Steen, you see people like Bruce, you see uh, people like Stephen, you see all these people that have very divergent areas of interest but have some shared kind of collective goal. And I think the value can be described in a number of ways. But really the collective intellectual interests and the fact that there people with quite diverging interests can have the shared element is, is really the thing that is artificial life and that's the thing uh, that the, the value problem needs to describe. So you don't necessarily need to be so close to the community in order to see the value. That's the critical thing because everyone within the community has a kind of implicit understanding of what the value is. It's just translating that into something explicit. Larry? You teach people uh, with regards to artificial life. You inspire people with regards to artificial life. How would you begin to start tackling the value problem? Well, there's there's two ways to approach what I, I the value problem. If I'm if I'm using the term correctly, one is the sort of intellectual philosophical value, which is I mean sort of undeniably grand. It's it's the the nature of life itself. That goes back to, I think, the original thinking, uh, Chris Lankin, about understanding what it is to be alive at all and um, how to approach that scientifically. Um, then there is the, the, the other value problem. How can the research directions that, that we engage in in order to address this fundamental philosophical issue bring value to industry bring value to the other sciences. Um, and so I, I'm the, sort of the intellectual philosophical value seems just wonderfully blind, you know, incredibly obvious to me. Um, the, the one I think we actually should spend some time on is making sure that we, uh, I think as Chris Langton again said way back quite early on, we need to give back. We need to give something back to the other sciences and, um, bring the insights that come out of our researches in artificial life back into biochemistry and um, uh, as my friends doing natural language processing uh, areas that can actually help industry and science in general um, in fact I'd be curious if, if it's not giving away too much Oliver uh, I'm sorry not Oliver um, Stephen um, uh, I, who are some of your clients, or maybe what are some of the types of clients that you're dealing with in industry? Um, I'd like to, to know specifically what they expect to get out of it, what they intend to apply it to when they, they get back home. Um, yeah, not at all uh, secret. Um, uh, so, so I think uh, agent-based modeling and visualization are kind of where the the, the smaller uh, incremental steps are coming as you apply artificial life. So I think it's kind of more... And those do apply quite broadly. Yeah. So, so I think that's kind of a lot of what we're doing. Um, but, you know, our, our further reaching goal is how do you now start treating organizations as living systems 
Um, you know, our definition is kind of starting more from the Stu Kaufman's all living systems do work cycles um, mm-hmm. perspective, kind of a way for the evolutionary computations in there, but it's more of a, a, a metabolic uh, approach. Um, and there's some people in the 80s in the uh, ecological psychology uh, is, is a discipline that looked at uh, as a thermodynamic work cycles were foundations to cognition, which was a kind of weird thing to unpack. It took a long time. It took, it t- took some time to kind of think about how that applies to software. Um, what we um, so you know what does work and heat mean in software? Uh, right. But but in the applied side, um, I know some projects we're working with the uh, San Francisco, looking at how kids move through the youth mental health system. Uh, we model the criminal justice system in the UK, the home office there. Uh, one of our favorite projects is uh, we're mo- uh, modeling boat traffic in the city of Venice, Italy. So we get to ride around on boats and model the canals. Um, so, but it's, a lot of times it's agent ba- agents moving on graphs of one type or another and visualizing them, and letting people um, getting a sense of what is, and then you know what, and then running what if scenarios. But, but you know, so it's 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 a it's a small step to what I would think is a the larger. You know, I think the promise is how how can you really start dealing with these systems as adapt you know adapting to their environment and and uh, you know, and doing real work. And in terms of what you're doing currently, can you project in 10 years' time the kind of things that you'll be doing? And do you get a sense of what the future holds for uh, artificial life outreach into industry? Um, what would you like to be doing in 10 years' time with this? Let's put it that way. Um, yeah, so I, would, I think I would like uh, certainly the tool ch- uh, toolkits to be better, um, uh, both on the visualization and modeling sides. Um I would like to have a, a stronger theory uh, of, of uh, artificial life uh, in, in this metabolic space, uh, um, ideas of symmetry uh, and symmetry breaking as they relate to constraint construction organizations. Um, I don't know. I, I, I guess I would like a, a stronger understanding. Yes, we're, still, we're, still, uh, we're still grappling. And Bruce, in terms of the in terms of the amazing polymaths in artificial life, I mean my my um, inspiration in some regard, and I know yours too, comes from Freeman Dyson. When you look at someone like Freeman Dyson, and in terms of his general and broader thinking, in terms of simulation, in terms of ideas in artificial life, what do you think the the field could learn from Freeman, and how do you think uh, the value problem can be expressed through Freeman's thinking? Well, ironically, when I last time I was uh, sitting down with Freeman on the Evil Grid project in earlier this year, he turned to me and he said, "My one great regret of my career is that I never got into computing. I.e., I never wrote any code. I never built any software systems. I, I I looked at it all happening here at the institute with von Neumann's machine, but I never did it. And when I look at his toy universe model in Origin of Life, you know, in the first and second editions, that's kind of a prescription for writing an origin, an artificial origin of life system in software. So he was doing it in mathematics, but wanted to do it in software. So in a sense, the toy universe's approach of, of completely fundamental emergence is inspired by Freeman. Uh, and his desire to have uh, tested some of his models that are in mathematics. And in terms of in terms of your broader surveying of, of artificial life, and obviously starting biota and these kind of things, 
you've obviously considered the value problem at, at various points along the along the journey, so to speak. What's your current thinking in terms of the value of artificial life and how you express that to uh, an external community? Well, the way I, I prefer to explain it is really not watering down the visionary component and trying to come up with you know, fairly vertical and, and small applications, but starting with the public with uh, the, the total vision. Uh, and I would I'll liken it to explaining to why we're going into space. You know, why we're going into space, it did have some commercial spin-offs, but the primary thing that everyone grokks about that is that it's for the human soul and the human spirit, um, that, that it's the vision for our species, some some degree of pride and national chest pounding, but really we're doing it because um, it's a unique thing we can do in the universe. And for my for my nickel, uh, artificial life is about that same kind of exploration. It's, it's it's probing back into time to ask the question of how could we have emerged from non-living parts? You know, how, how, what does that mean for our our understanding of of creation? and religions and spiritual beliefs and why did the universe uh, cough up living systems? Up in, 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 is there spirit in those systems? I mean, it really, it's, as, as I think was said earlier, it's, it's about being alive as a species and uh, having a sentience, uh, and that's why we need to do it. Um, so that, that's, that's how... I tend to approach, and of course, there are a huge number of spinoffs as there has been from space technology. Understanding who we are um, as a as a, a living race is uh, you could hardly have a more fundamental question. Yeah. Yes. Well, we have we have a lot of people in the chat room that are they're putting in their own particular uh, visions with regards to the future of artificial life, and I'd like to thank the chat room in particular. For folks who are interested in participating in the work group, just go to biota.org slash podcast. There is a mailing list associated with the work group, and you'll be able to see some of the folks who are involved. Larry, you, you're not on the mailing list currently, but you're kind of taking a precursory. You, you're really surveying the, the work of the work group currently. Actually, I thought I had, by registering with the uh, the wiki, I thought I was officially there. But uh, well, I, Consider yourself officially there, then. We have had a number of people that have signed up to the workgroup mailing list who are interested in surveying it, and I'd also like to say that that's fine as well. Larry, I was going to use you as an example of that, but you, you are very much an active participant, and it's, it's wonderful to have you uh, as part of the workgroup. This is going to be an ongoing discussion through uh, the Biota Live format. We're going to have people on on a regular basis to talk about it, and just through the the impact of the chat room. And I think uh, Bruce and I have been on a number of Biota Lives previously, but the the energy that's coming into this work group seems to uh, indicate that this is clearly a, a shared objective for the artificial life community. And it's wonderful to have the opportunity to distill that through uh, talking with Mark Badeau initially. So, Bruce, you've been travelling recently. You've done some stuff associated with the EvoGrid. I think folks in the listening audience would, would love to hear a, an EvoGrid update. How are things going currently? Well, some fundamental things have happened uh, in, in, in an unusual way. Dick Gordon, who, as people may know from previous podcasts, is the, the brain, the, the inspirer behind the EvoGrid project, drove 1,500 miles pulling his 26- or 30-foot travel trailer arrived in Santa Cruz on the coast here 
Wednesday night, and I went and spent most of the day with him and his wife and their two dogs on Thursday. And we sat down at the little, you know, Formica table and worked uh, for hours on the Evo grid and came up with some real fundamental innovations that I think finally closed the loop on the Evo grid and allow it to become a simulation that doesn't have the holes punched in it of potential accusations of intelligent design, Um, i.e., and just just a real brief explanation, that the observers looking for interesting phenomena, the observer functions are in themselves uh, going to be developed through evolutionary techniques. So the observers are part of the system, and what this is what Dick Gordon calls the evolution or the arising of perception. Uh, so like the von Neumann machine at the Institute in the 1950s, We're going to not have any patch cords in here, folks. It's got to be a completely self-referential system. So if stuff happens in there, it's observed by little widgets that are themselves subject to uh, evolutionary development. In terms of the Dick Gordon Roadshow, he's he's making his way down to spend some time with William R. Buckley currently. I, I fielded an email from him yesterday. I don't think I'll be leaving Las Vegas in the near future. But I think that Roadshow will certainly uh, contribute a, a lot back into the EvoGrid project, and I look forward to hearing future updates from you, Bruce, with regards to it, because obviously the, the EvoGrid, do you call it, uh, how, how's the EvoGrid's relationship with Biota, as you say it explicitly? Is it a sub-project, a project of Biota? Is it a, uh, something that runs in parallel to Biota? What's your current thinking? I, th- I think of it as a fundamental biota project. Well, I'd like to thank the, the participants today, Stephen and Oliver in particular, because you're both new participants. It's wonderful to have new folks involved with Biota Live, and also thank you for your uh, participation in the work group as well. I think the issues associated with media uh, and the value problem are going to be ones that are, are periodic and returned to, and certainly uh, Larry and Stephen both have, have talked about their own particular interests with regards to uh, how to propagate the message of artificial life through teaching, and I think that's a fundamental aim of the work group as well. So a short bio to live today, primarily because it's being recorded on Saturday morning, but due to the immense feedback, I think the Saturday morning time format works very well. We've had a, a number of folk from uh, the East Coast and from Europe in the chat room, including uh, Eric Burton, Gerald de Jong, uh, Ryan Flanagan, who I believe is in Japan, uh, and of course, Rudolf Benikoff from the Netherlands. So I'd like to thank all the folks in the chat. I'd like to thank uh, the folks who've participated in the call. And thanks in particular to the listeners. Please, please participate in the work group. Go to biota.org slash podcast and get involved. Thank you very much.